This is a previously recorded episode. You're listening to the Innovates podcast featuring speaker and innovation expert Michael Mode. We bring you innovation on the 8s with new episodes posted every day that ends in 8, the 8th, 18th, and 28th of the month. The Innovates podcast is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. For more information about Michael Mode and his corporate speaking and consulting services, please visit Innovates.com. That's I-N-N-O-V-E-I-G-H-T-S.com or BigLightBulb.com. And now, get ready for another creative conversation with your host, Michael Mode. Welcome to another episode of Innovates. I'm your host, Michael Mode, and I'm really excited about uh, talking with my guest today, Mr. Ken Klosterman, one of the most interesting and most successful people I've ever met. Ken is uh, known all over the world for his collection of magic, which is the most historically significant collection in the world. The uh, Salon de Magie is uh, located in an abandoned mine shaft under his residence in Loveland, Ohio. And in 1990, the Smithsonian Magazine recognized Ken as having the largest magic book collection in the world. Now, Ken has also achieved great success in the baking world. His uh, family bakery, Klosterman Baking Company, in Cincinnati, Ohio, was the first to do many things in that area, including hamburger buns, uh, private label bread, uh, first square loaf of bread, first plastic bag for bread. The list goes on and on. And in 2011, he was recognized uh, by being inducted into the Baking Hall of Fame. So I'd like to welcome a friend of mine to the show, Mr. Ken Klosterman. How are you doing, Ken? Michael, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Sure, welcome. Now, we met last year. Our good friend Al the Only brought me down to your place, and uh, uh, I think we hit it off right away. You're just, uh, just a cool guy. And you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> your 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 collection is absolutely amazing. Your magic collection, which we'll get to later, but more impressive than that, I found just talking with you about uh, your stories and your wisdom and your history, and uh, your your business lessons and life lessons. And that's what I'd like to talk with you today. And and let's start with uh, the baking world because it's been very good to you. And you are uh, how many generations in are you? I know, I know your children run the baking company today, your son and your daughter. Uh, I, ima- I imagine I'm third, third generation. This was started yeah. back in the 1800s uh, in Germany by your ancestors, right? Well, yes, really, but we didn't come really moving until 1900s. In Germany, we, Frau Klosterman just baked out of her house and sold a few of these Dutchmen that came along. Right. Now, was it your intention to go into the baking business, or did you want to? Did you want to be a baker? Well, I, you know, I was kind of raised in the business, but I wanted to. I wanted to get in the army, and I thought that that was the way I wanted to go because at that time our business wasn't big enough to support two families, and uh, so I did magic. I did magic in the army. And uh, just that was it until, well, a catastrophe happened, and I guess I could go into that. And yeah, now was this when, had, your, when your father had a heart attack, right? That's right, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and then I came home to see him, and 
while I'd clean up the bakery to army standards. It wasn't that dirty, but it was new polyurethane, ethylene, highly inflammable, and I burnt the bakery down. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then did you, my, you, so you had to start over from scratch, right? No. Well, we had a truck. We yeah. had a truck, and we went to another bakery, a large bakery, and borrowed bread from him and kept your customers the most important guy you got. And we had a few of them, and we wanted to keep them. Right. Now, you've, you've said that to me several times about the customer is the most important, and customer service is one of the, the key things that Klosterman Baking Company focuses on. Uh, you used to go into the restaurants you were servicing and see the people, uh, you know, the customers that you had and, and observe the customers eating and everything. Tell us the story about the, the chance meeting that changed your life in a very positive way. Oh, okay. I sure, sure will. Was it at the – was it the OB uh, – what was the name of the restaurant? OG Bobby? Uh, oh, boy. It's a long time. I forgot yeah. now. But I, it'll come back to me. I sleep – think a little slowly now, you know. <laughs> 83 years of trying to keep it all in your mind, it gets kind of tough. Well, I think you're uh, 83 years young. You're, you're one of the youngest people I know at heart. You're just a big kid to me. Well, well I'm only 18 with 68 years of experience, yes. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, yeah, I was serving a restaurant called Paz G.Y. That's it. In Cincinnati, a very small one. And uh, a fellow was opening up some McDonald's in the area. And he came over to eat. He would eat at Paz G.Y. And this was back in what year? Because this was when McDonald's was first starting out, right? They were... Well, it was early. Let's see. Boy, I don't know. If I'd say 55, I'd probably be wrong. So 19, but, uh, yeah, about 1955, probably. And uh, this guy came in and would have eaten like the bun that the restaurant operator was serving. And he uh, turned and he said, where do you get those buns? And he says, there's it over there, Kenny Klosser. And he's sitting over there at the table. And he came over and he introduced himself. Uh, two fellows, Lou Grone and Ray Kroc, and uh, I was able to meet them. And uh, he asked him if I would serve one of his places that he was building in Cincinnati, and I said, certainly, certainly. And that was uh, one of the real real breakthroughs. And uh, So he gave you the got, opportunity to start baking buns for McDonald's, which you still do today. The company still does, right? Yes, we do. We only, we only bake for a certain number of states. McDonald's has bakeries all over the country. Right. So, but uh, we're and, one of his bakeries. But there's a lot of other great restaurants out there. And what we had done prior to this and, and during that is no other bakery wanted to serve restaurants. They were new on the market. Restaurants. Were. Yeah. This is. It's hard to imagine a time when restaurants were new, but this was back well, when people mostly ate at home. Yeah, that's right. They ate at home. Brought the butternut, the wonder, and the tasty bread on their tables. There were nine bakeries in Cincinnati at that time. Wholesale bakeries, big ones. We were the little one. We were the kind of temple on progress in the baking industry at that time. 
so well, you're going to get me talking, and I won't stop because <laughs> well, that, that's, I do reminisce. That's a good thing. And, you know, I love the story about you. You talked about there being nine bakeries, and these were big bakeries, and you were you were growing the business. And uh, you wanted to impress these guys by uh, by showing up to a meeting in a special car. Oh, yeah. Well, we had two things. Since we had one truck, and they've painted – Oh, this is a great story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the red-blue truck, right? Yeah, red on one side and blue on the other. And it'd go up the street and turn around, and people thought we had two trucks. And, <laughs> so uh, you created the illusion that you were more successful than you were. You know, you were doing this. You were using magic techniques even back then. Oh, I guess. Well, maybe so. I didn't realize it. But then I, that worked all right, so I painted every truck a different color. And our competition, as we grew, maybe we had 20 trucks painted them all different colors, and our competition didn't know where we were going. <laughs> so uh, it was great, great. And magic was, sure helped me in business really a lot. Yeah. And, and the story about the, the Lincoln. The story about what? About the Lincoln, about the meeting at the country. Oh, yeah. Well, that was, I, I shouldn't even talk about that. Oh, that's terrible. That gave me in trouble. But <laughs> we needed we needed a price increase very bad. Mm-hmm. And I had heard that uh, all the other bakers in Cincinnati were raising prices, but they were not going to raise prices on restaurant items. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, you just can't go to your competitors and say, why in the hell aren't you raising my prices? And, uh, so I went to... Lincoln Mercury dealer. And in those days, you could borrow a car, and I borrowed the biggest Lincoln they had on the floor, and I drove it down to my dad. He had better now, and and he said, Kenny, what are you doing with this? I said, I'm just going to go up to a bakery meeting. Well, I'm driving in that big Lincoln. In those days, when everyone went out to see cars, the bakers came over and looked at it, and I guess they thought I was making so much money, they wouldn't hold me down, so they raised prices <laughs> on restaurant bread, too. Another way that you uh, you used magic, kind of, in a way, you know, to uh, appear more successful than you were at the time. Yeah, that's which, right. I was selling sizzle. You were selling the sizzle. You've used that term as well. And uh, I, I think that's... Uh, that's a great term they use. Now, you would go and – well, you took over from your father. You you became chairman and CEO of Klosterman Baking Company in 1972. Okay. And then uh, according to the website here, say, or when you were inducted into the Baking Hall of Fame, they said that sales increased 400 percent under your reign. And in the first 10 years, you doubled the amount of employees. How did you do that? Oh, I didn't know I did all that. I don't know where you get those facts, but they sound pretty good. Oh, they're I did true. It, if I did anything. You're also one of the most humble people I know. So I think, uh, you know, w- when you talk about your collection and all your accomplishments, uh, I think that's one of the reasons you're so successful is because you always give other people credit, which is, which is just very kind of you. Well, you know, that's so true. You know, I was fortunate enough to surround myself with good people best people I could find, and we had a lot of them, and I made very few decisions. I'd sit and talk to three main people, and and they'd give me ideas, and I said, let's go with it, and they ran with it, and we've been fortunate, you know? Right. 
And we're still doing that way. We have great, great people. I think that's the most important thing in business, period. That's your secret ingredient is the employees and the you treat them like a family, like friends, right? Yeah, like like family. Mm-hmm. They're good people and they stick with you. And they produce and well, we're a small company. Understand we're not a large company. We serve seven states in Cincinnati. There were nine bakeries in Cincinnati, wholesale bakery. We're the only one left. They all moved out of Cincinnati. Not that we pushed them out, but something happened to them. Right. You're we're, you're a small company, later. but you're uh, well. You I I wouldn't really consider it small, but you you are one of the biggest family-owned bakeries in the Midwest still. Well, we're we're right up there, first or second, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. My son's and daughter's done a great job, and it's, it's just fun. I, I've never worked a day in my life. Every day was fun, and just like magic was fun. Every day I could, oh, I'd go out and I'd do magic tricks for the customers, you know, and they wouldn't even know my name, but they'd call a bakery and say, hey, send that salesman out who does those magic tricks. And, and you also used to use things as your calling card, the uh, oh, the yeah. quarter, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, That's another great not, story. Not original idea, but pretty so. So a fellow said to me one time, give the customer something, but don't put your name on it. Don't take a pencil and write your name on it or Thanksgiving, something without your name on that you would remember. So I went and I bought two-headed quarters, okay? Right. And then I'd I'd go out, customer, and, you know, try to sell them bread. And they say, oh, bread's bread. Well, I'll flip you for it. If I win, I want to serve you our bread for one day just to try it. And if I lose, I'll give you your bread for a whole year. <laughs> so they thought they were they had a chance at winning free bread for a year. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they didn't know the you were using a double-headed quarter. Yeah, and I'd flip the quarter, and of course I'd win. And uh, I wouldn't hold them to it. I'd just give them the quarter and say, if any time you want to change your bread, want a different quality bread, call me up. And they'd call the bakery, and again, it wasn't Ken Klosserman. Who's that guy that gives away those quarters? So So you you created a memory with them. That was something memorable that stood out, and I think that's one of the lessons you probably got from the magic world, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. And and what about how you would would bring a bag of of baked goods that your company had made and you would leave them on the chair. Okay. Well, that was another kind of selling sizzle. For an example, if I, I'd go into a, oh, any other restaurant, fast food restaurant or whoever, uh, I'd go and get take some of our best products we have fresh right out of the oven, put them in a paper sack, and go in and visit the purchasing agent and, I accidentally leave that sack on the chair as I left. And uh, they said, oh, you forgot your sack. Of, you forgot your sack. 
And I said, oh, that's all right. Take it back to your wife. Well, this was right out of the oven, just great stuff. My hopes were, and it worked, the wife would eat it and say, boy, that's good stuff. Do you buy bread from this bakery? What bread is it? And uh, that was just a little, I don't know, selling the sizzle. You were selling the sizzle. The housewife liked it, so she's going to say to the purchasing agent, well, that's good stuff. You should try them. And you were you were just using innovative ways of uh, connecting with your customers, and and making them remember you. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I, people have been awful good to me. Uh, sometimes I wonder why. Well, it's because you're a nice person. Well, I don't know. I did some tough things to my life. And sometimes I had to fire people, and that's the hardest thing in the world to do. Yeah. Now, your father, uh, I heard a story about your father doing something with coins that was very visual. He taught you a lesson about how the bakery would lose money with uh, with a handful of pennies. Oh, yeah, we used to, when they made, years ago now, when you made a loaf of bread, you pick up a handful of flour and you throw it on the on a bench, and then you throw your uh, dough piece on there and start rolling it up. Well, when they threw that half threw that flour on the floor, that that was money. And Dad used to pick up a handful of dimes. He'd walk out, and I remember he did one day, and he get away from his table and he act like he picked up flour and he threw all these pennies on the floor. And she says, that's, that's what you're throwing on that floor. He taught me a lot of things, like if you keep the corners of the bakery clean, the middle of the floor will stay clean. Very and true. Then instead wow. of having lights, flip one button. We used to have stations where you'd go over and flip over the station just to serve on electricity. Uh, a lot of little things, and you and, know, and how would that help? That would up. that would help by controlling all the lights in that area. Yeah, just yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't switch on one light and open up uh, fifteen thousand square feet of lights. You just go to the area you needed the lights. Oh, okay, over one particular station. Light. Got it. Got it. So this was a, a bigger area, and it would be, you know, you would be controlling the lights for one area and, then, and not the entire building. Got it. That's right. That's right. Got it. Now, you were also influenced, uh, well, let's, let's stick uh, to baking for just another minute here. The, the, the Klosterman Baking Company, uh, they manufacture over 300 different types of baked goods uh, daily. And uh, right. you innovated several different things during your time there at the company. What were some of the biggest uh, uh, accomplishments that you did while you were in the baking world? Oh, that's, you mean manufacturing things? I helped Arby's develop their bun. Even today, we you helped, helped Arby's other develop their bun? Wow. Yeah, they wanted a bun with a split top on. And so, well, we do that today. You know, anyone who comes in, a new customer or if a customer wants something different, you know, we'll fix it for them if they want salt on, if they want pretzel buns, 
whatever they whatever they want, Klosterman's would make. Mm-hmm. We make the slop that runs. That's not slop. We make the stuff that runs over the barrel that no other bakeries want to make. Right. So, because uh, they're the they're the important people. You got to give them what they want. You just don't give them what you want to give them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're following me on that one. Yeah, I do. I do. You're you're manufacturing what they need, and uh, sometimes there's other people that won't do that. But there's a lot of customers out there, a lot of restaurants, and uh, I mean, well, you're in mm-hmm. McDonald's, but you're 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 baking things for Arby's and other restaurants. So chances are, if, if you're out there in the Midwest eating in a restaurant, you've eaten a Klosterman product. There's a good chance of it. And the other thing that the last thing I guess we came out with was a half loaf of bread. Because, you know, not everyone can eat a whole loaf of bread. And why waste in this day and age? Throw stuff out. So Right. And it also uh, would give them the opportunity to buy maybe a half loaf of white and a half loaf of rye or, you know, different combinations as well, right? Amen. That's, yeah. that's true. I mean, the that's list true. here that uh, – I got this from the Baking Hall of Fame of, of things that uh, when you were inducted in 2011, and it's a uh, – you know, I didn't know there was a Baking Hall of Fame until – Last night when I was looking it up, and it's a very uh, – there aren't many people in this. And when you look at the names, they're names that you recognize from different bread companies. But they listed uh, things that, that Klosterman and Baking Company did in the Cincinnati area. Uh, they were the first to do plastic bags on buns, the first to, to manufacture foot-long hot dog buns, the first for a square loaf of bread – first for brown and serve rolls, the first hamburger buns. And then you were also the first to do private label bread, which is uh, for grocery stores, right? That's correct. That's right. Every All the big bakeries wanted at that time. Didn't want, they wanted their brand. And uh, I guess I couldn't sell a place and the guy didn't want to buy from me for whatever reason, because we were small on that and I uh, said, well, I'll put your name on the bread. And he said, really? And it's really. And so I put his name on the bread. And I guess that started private label bread, mm-hmm. they call it. Boy, the other bakeries were really mad at me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was another way of selling the sizzle. You took, uh, it's almost like taking a magic trick and dressing it up in a different way, but you presented something in a unique way and, and created a new market for it. That's innovation. That's where Magic helped me so much. I mean, it really did, because these guys in Magic, if not all of them, but if many of them took their brains and took it away from Magic and did anything else, they would be great, I want to tell you, because a lot of smart guys in Magic. They really are. Really are. And what do you think the common thread is there? What qualities do you think they have? Uh, I can't, would you say that again? What qualities do you think? You said there's a lot of smart people in magic, and I agree with you. But what are the qualities? I mean, when you know a lot of magicians, and a lot of them have, vis- have visited your house and your museum. Well, they're, they're creative. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays, it doesn't seem to be creative as it used to be. Now you watch a trick on television uh, uh, and, or on the Internet and... You can make it years ago. You had to read a book, learn about it, 
figure out your own method of doing it or come up with something different. There's not as much innovation and magic today as I think there was years ago. Right. Now, uh, I I would say that a lot of magicians, and I think this is true of you, you like a good challenge. You you don't really consider anything impossible, do you? (laughs) I haven't flown yet. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think with your – the way you did business and the way you still do and you're still creating – uh, you've got that that childlike sense of wonder that a lot of magicians have. You know, when I said that you're an 83 year old, 83 years young, you are. You, you know, you're like a little kid. You would have this smile on your face as you were showing people your collection, and uh, you know, just that little, uh, you, you know, that twinkle in your eye. What, how do you keep that passion going? And after so many years of collecting magic and, and performing magic. Oh, boy. That shouldn't be hard for me to answer. But every morning when I get out of bed, and sometimes it's awful hard, I go back to, hey, I'm only 18 years old. And I've got a lot longer to go. And I get out of bed thinking I'm young. And uh, it's a tough job when you get older, you know. Mm-hmm. But thank God I got my son, who's just as creative as I am, and my daughter. They do great things, and your daughter runs. Uh, your daughter is the uh, Kim, right? Yeah, that's Kim. Yeah, and then Chip is your son. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I got Jamie. She's well. She got smart and married a doctor, so she's not in the baking <laughs> business. Yeah. And, uh, well, you've just got a lovely family, your, your wife, Judy, and then uh, you're a dog lover like I am. You've got, uh, was it Jack and Annie, right, your, your dogs? That's Jack and Annie, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a big Russell. animal lover. Yeah. And, you're, and your horses that you have there, when we were there, you had a, a, a two-day-old horse, which was uh, just mm-hmm. amazing to see. That's a magic all on its own. Yeah, it's great. That's, that's my wife's hobby, and she was... Uh, well, started out top collie breeder in the country, and then later she was, uh, when we got into horses, she was the top breeder of horses in five states and over the hard boots of Kentucky. Wow. And she went her way, and I went my way in magic, and I guess that's kept us together for 58 years. Well, you, you, both, had your, your, you both have your passions of, of what you love. And and let's talk about how we got to know each other. Is is magic? Because you're very well known in the magic world, and uh, you got started when you were just a, a kid, like most magicians, right? Yeah, same, same. Yeah, 15, 15 years old doing shows. Mm-hmm. Was for, your first uh, trick from you got your first trick from your was it your uncle? Yeah, my uncle Jack. It, yeah, yeah, he taught me how to read. I'd, oh, isn't uh, that great? I was a sl- yeah. slow reader, and he came yeah. and did a magic trick, and I said, oh, how do you do that? And he said, it's in this book. And I was, boy, I looked through the book. I couldn't find it. And he said, oh, I gave you the wrong book. Here's another book. <laughs> and he got feeding me the Tarbell Course in oh, Magic. Those are my so favorite books. I was still a slow reader, but my comprehension is really great. And, mm-hmm. and that's what magic, I mean, you read a book, and you got to comprehend. It's just not, you can't just read it, period, and learn it. 
Well, it's all about problem solving. Yeah, it's I like reading so. a like reading a recipe book almost, but I think even more difficult. You know, you're taking these different components and figuring out how to put them together. Uh, it's, it's fun. Yeah, I guess it's challenging, but it's fun. You know. Yeah. Well, your uncle did you a great service by uh, teaching you how to read and then giving you. I wonder if if that really was a mistake that he gave you the wrong book. I don't think so. No. No. Yeah. That was on purpose. Yeah. And for magicians, that was a. Brema bill tube. Mm-hmm. That's the trick that he gave you—the brass bill tube. <laughs> and for listeners that don't know, a, a, a signed dollar bill or twenty-dollar bill or whatever would vanish and appear inside of a locked brass tube. And that—that that was your yeah. first trick. That was a very good trick that he gave you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And do you still and have? Later, that? I made him appear in loaves of bread when I did my magic show. Judy and I did magic. Uh, to help supplement our income years ago. Big name, Ken and Judy, Doves and Feathers. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> well, I look back on it. Well, I remember seeing the TV commercials you did as well. Yeah. You used uh, magic. Was that for a bank, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I can't think of a bank anymore. Seven years. I should be able to. Madison yeah. Building and Loan. Yeah. Madison Building and Loan. And you did several commercials for them where you were the magician, and you got to be well uh, well known in the Cincinnati area for that. Yeah, well, yeah, that was great for me. Yeah. That was great for me. I know uh, when I had a heart attack at 45, uh, they had to get someone else, and they got a good friend of mine, Dale Penn. And they called up, and they're all excited. We've got Dale Penn. And uh, they were going to pass him off as uh, Ken Klosterman. And Dale, Dale was a black man. And they got him. They didn't know what to do, so they made him wear gloves and other things to <laughs> pass him off as me. <laughs> Poor guy. And he's a good magician. Thank God he could do it fine. Yeah. Dale was great. That's funny. But, uh Yeah. Now, your collection, the Salon de Magie, uh, it's incredible. And, and you, you created this museum. It's, it's not open to the public, but you, you share it with certain people, and you were kind enough to share it with me. David Copperfield's been there several times, who's a friend of yours, right? Yeah, David and, and well, most everyone. Every yeah, Penn and Teller have been there. One time came. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love to have people. I really do. I mean, that keeps me going. I it makes me get up in the morning and say, "Come on, let's go." And we drive forty-five miles to an old grist mill. And, and that's the that's your second solutions. location. Yeah. Well, you you actually kind of have three different buildings where you keep the magic because yeah. it's yeah. it's uh, you've gotten too much magic now. Not too much, but <laughs> it's overgrown one location. I've got too much. There's never too know. much. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I don't know what to do with it, you know. But I can't stop collecting. It's like a a disease, but I love it. It's Christmas time. Every time I get something to open that has magic in, it's just like every day's my Christmas. Isn't that so true? You know, people ask me, what what is it like to be a magician? And I said, well, you know when you were a child and you experienced Christmas, and then it was magic. And then you got old enough where you knew the truth about Santa. And it was a little disappointing. Well, that's what it's like finding out the secret to a trick. 
But then when you perform that trick and share it with others, you get to experience Christmas through their eyes. It's, it's yeah. almost like giving, you know, seeing children on Christmas Day. That's what being a magician is like. That's probably what it is. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, yeah, it is Christmas. Yeah. I tell you, and uh, it's a wonderful, hey, it's the greatest hobby in the world. It really Every, is. I would say nine, uh, 75% of kids uh, under 15 has messed around with magic, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, hey, it's growing a little expensive now. What could I collect that wouldn't be absorbent, wouldn't cost so much? And I remember when my dad, I need, I wanted an illusion. And in those days, then my show, an illusion would cost, you know, two, maybe $300, a lot of money. Anyhow, finally, I guess they thought I was going to be a Houdini. So he bought me an illusion. I go out and do my $25 show. And then I found out I had to pay the girl $5 to jump out of the box. <laughs> so that cut me. My dad didn't like driving it out. So the third show, we said, let's forget about the illusion. Now, there's got to be hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of illusions up in barns that children, kids like me, had the same problem. So I've been collecting illusions. Problem is, now i got to build bigger buildings to house the illusions. So. <laughs> and, and you've – well, let's first – let's start with the, the first collection, the Salon de Magie, uh, the Salon of Magic. Tell us where that's located and, and how people have to access it because that is part of the magic is, is getting there. Well, how many uh, feet down is it in the ground? How many feet? Yeah, I, I can tell you that. Uh, it's interesting how we found it. We found it in an abandoned mine shaft. That's a long story, so I'll shorten it. What we did over that mine shaft, we got it's a hundred and I, I forget one hundred and six feet. I don't know, but I, I was on tell the truth, so you know what I'm telling you is a true <laughs> story. Okay. Yes. Uh, that's funny. That's that's really funny. But anyhow, <laughs> anyhow I got a, I got a uh, we put an elevator in. First of all, I had to get permission from the state of Ohio because down the bottom you need so many doors to exit and enter and so forth. And got these guys got interested in magic from the state, and they helped me put it in. You better not tell the state that they didn't give me anything, but they gave me drawings and. Things of that nature. So we go down the elevator and we go through various. They made me put slag, put uh, styrofoam around the slag tights and slag mites, because if they wanted to clean it out someday. And I got nine rooms full of magic down in the ground. That's about and a theater. Oh yeah, and a theater and a séance room and a room that's just for. Cards, uh, magic cards and magic apparatus that does card tricks and then an Egyptian room and a Victorian room. And uh, Now, for, for people who are listening who, who haven't uh, seen pictures of your collection or don't know much about it, I was talking with um, Richard Hughes, 
who uh, okay. a good friend of yours who's helping you sure. archive your files. And uh, Richard said, you have 4,200 pieces of apparatus, about 1,500 right. magic posters, and probably he, – he estimates because you haven't gone through all of it yet – Sixty to 70,000 pieces of ephemera. Yes, I would say easy that. Yeah. yeah. And Richard, Richard said he, he likes to call himself the archivist. Uh, your assistant, uh, your right-hand woman, Glenna, the scanist, and then he, yeah. he calls you the accumulist. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's it. So how did yeah. you get started collecting? Because your collection is just incredible. And, and what, uh, what started you collecting, and what do you love about it? Hmm. Well, the thing that started me collecting, I was in Chicago trying to sell some bread to a steakhouse, and I went to a magic shop, Ireland Magic Shop, and uh, they were having a collector's meeting back there. And uh, are you here to join the collector's meeting? No, no, I'm not. Well... You want to? I said, no, I'll go in. And they were the people around there showing their wares and the tables and selling stuff back and forth, magic. And uh, I saw a little fellow by the name of Charlie Cayley. She ended up being a dear friend of mine. Yeah. And he was, he'd say, well, I got, I got two of those. Everything that guy held up to sell, Charlie had two. And I said, Charlie... If you got two, would you sell me one? He said, sure, kid. How much money you got? And I had, let's see, I had about $400. And, uh, Which was a said, lot of money me, back then. Yeah. Give me 300 and I'll send you something. I don't know why. I gave him 300 and he sent me some stuff that my wife says, get your money back. Throw it out. <laughs> Turned out to be two of the rarest pieces of magic I have. The Herman table, which is a famous magician. The Alexander Herman table. Yeah, and then the other is the uh, Keller table. Harry Keller, and, uh, yeah. And so that started me. I didn't know who those two people were. I looked up in a book, and then I, I don't know, I just got the bug and started buying and finding magic. Of course, in those days, I, you know, I had the magic stores, too, later. And how, how do you get started on collecting things? I don't know. Right. Yeah, you uh, still collect, though. When I talked to you the other day, you said, you know, is there anything that you know that I can add to the collection? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> always. Yeah. Always. What, what, um, was there ever a piece that, that got away from you that you didn't get? Oh, well, sometimes I buck up against a Copperfield and mm -hmm. he gets it on, you know, some of these auctions. But, you know, I've never been envious or jealous of anyone. And if they get it, that's good. People say, how can you let people walk through and visit your magic? I mean, do you miss some? Is it ever stolen? On occasion it was, but I always thought, hey... That's not going to kill me. That's he needs it better than I. Right. I, don't know. I think a little screwy people think I do, but I enjoy life and it doesn't bother me. That's a good outlook. 
Now, you mentioned David Copperfield. Talk a little bit about your relationship with him. Well, well it's so hard because <clears throat> David's kind of, uh, he's, he's not a recluse anymore, but he was. He also quiet. Yeah, well, you and, know I used uh, to work with David. And, uh, he, you know, just an amazing magician, an amazing collection in magic. And, uh, yeah, take it from there. But he was, uh, you know, you probably know him better than I do, but I like him. I like him a lot. I think he's great. I don't see him that often. He's always treated me well. Interesting about David is what's all the money he makes. He's sure, not saying watch a buck, but he looks for value. And if he feels that something's overpriced, even though he can afford it easily and not make a dent, He'll pass on it. Yeah. And well, it's kind of like the lesson that you shared about your uh, your father with the, the the flower and the pennies. It's it's kind of the same thing in in a way where uh, David runs a very clean business and uh, he's very smart with his money. Yeah, he is. He's a he's a good guy. Yeah. And, uh, probably without a doubt, uh, best magician I've had the opportunity to see. Yeah, without of a doubt. the type he does, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just great. I mean, I, I'm into, like, Thurston. I'm not into Houdini. Houdini was fine, but he wasn't a magician. He was a real promoter. And you have yeah, an but, incredible Houdini collection. You have Houdini's lockpick set and several sets of handcuffs and props and different things. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he was, but... Uh, who was your favorite magician? If you could go back in time and see a magician that you didn't get a chance to see, who would it be? Mm, I don't know. That's kind of like asking me which kid I like best. Uh, <laughs> it's hard for me to say. Of course, I'd like. I would have liked to see Thurston. Yeah, Howard Thurston. I did see Dante. Uh, imagine I would imagine Alexander Herman mm-hmm. or maybe Keller yeah Keller would have been hard, amazing hard question for mm-hmm. me to answer yeah now you're uh, um, the Smithsonian magazine in 1990 recognized you as having the largest collection of magic books in the world and you no have an entire of, of what? Not books. Oh, I thought it was books. I don't think so. Maybe it was. I thought it was tricks or just magic, largest magic collection in the world. Well, I think but you, I you do. probably I, made for yeah. both, so yeah. Uh, you've got an entire room, your Houdini seance room, that's filled with books. Yeah. Uh, including a couple copies of The Discovery of Witchcraft, which is, which is uh, – some people say it wasn't the first magic book, but it's it's widely regarded by many as as the first book on magic. It was actually a, a book that dispelled a lot of the witchcraft that was being done at the time. This is from 1584, and uh, it, it's only got a few pages of magic in there, right? Only about thirty was it about thirty six pages of magic. Well, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've heard you say that there's. There's 36 pages of magic in there that pretty much explains a lot of the magic that was done back then and still being performed today. But there's also more magic books uh, that have been published over the years than any other subject 
uh, including medicine. Why do you think it, – it's such a secretive art, but why do you think there's been so many books published? Well, I think you, you will misquote it there. It's more magic books with the exception of medicine. Oh, with the exception of medicine. Okay, without – okay. Uh, and your question was, why do you think so many were published? For such a secretive art. I've always wondered why, you know, there are so many books. That's why I tell you, magicians are are unbelievable. I mean, creative. Uh, that's a difficult question to ask. I've never thought about an answer to that, but they sure do write books. Yeah. Well, there's also the quote of, if you want to keep a secret, put it in a book. <laughs> that's <laughs> because, right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, yeah, uh, let's talk about um, one of it's my favorite piece in your collection uh, is the uh, the light heavy chest from Robert Houdin. Now, for for the listeners out there uh, who don't know, Robert Houdin was the uh, the father of modern magic. He's the one who brought magic to the stage in mid-1800s France, and uh, that's where Houdini got his name. He, he was uh, a big admirer of Houdin, and he took uh, – he, he didn't know it was pronounced Houdin, but it was H-O-U-D-I-N, and he put an I at the end of the name to create the name Houdini. And Houdin was a, a clockmaker who invented a lot of magic, and uh, he stopped a war with the light heavy chest. And you have this actual prop. It's – it's probably the most historically significant magic prop in the world, wouldn't you say? That's what people tell me. Um, I haven't had any anything from Egypt or from the tombs, but uh, yeah. And you just have it sitting out there now. To to tell a little bit more about the story, this was in 1856. Napoleon the uh, Third he brought Houdin out of retirement. Isn't that correct? That's right, to, to stop an uprising in Algeria. And, and they were uprising against the French colonialists, and he wanted yeah. Houdin to prove that his magic powers were better than those of the Algerians, right? That's right. So, yeah. so talk a little bit about how this trick that you have, the light heavy chest, tell the effect of it and how it helped stop the war. Well, now you got to realize I wasn't there. I'm old, but I wasn't there, okay? <laughs> a couple uh, of weeks late, right? I think uh, well, he France, did, yeah. France set, sent, rather than troops, to stop the uprising. He knew that the Maribas were very superstitious, so he called on Robert Houdin to go down and demonstrate some of the powers of France. And uh, he went down there, and he did a few tricks for the big guys, and uh, it shocked him a little bit. But One of the tricks was the bullet catch, him, yeah. right? The bullet catch was one of the things he did, where he had him fire a gun, and he caught the bullet yeah. in his teeth. Yeah. yeah. But the shocker was uh, when he had a small child come up on stage, and he had a little box. The box was... Oh, eight by four inches, eight by five inches, anyhow, like a big jewelry box. And the little child couldn't pick it up. Or, I'm sorry, the little child picked it up from the floor and put it on the table. 
he then asked for a, the chieftain of the tribe to come up and pick it up. And he couldn't pick the box up. And, uh, so he took away this guy's power. This, you know, the, took away all his power. The child could pick it up, but the strongest man in the crowd couldn't do it because he removed his power. Yeah, and he asked for another man strong. The chief asked for the strongest man he knew to come up, and he gave him an incentive. If you don't pick up that box, I'm going to cut your head off. So the story goes, the man tried to pick up the box. When he went to lift it up, he got a tremendous shock, and he ran off into the woods or something like that. So ran off, ran off screaming. You can't yeah. lift it up, yeah. and it will shock you. And uh, that's that's pretty neat when you think the year 1860, and I don't know if electricity, I must have been discovered by then. I don't know when whoever that guy was that flew, flew the kite. but uh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's said that Houdin had the first house completely run by electricity as well. Yeah, yeah. pretty neat. He had yeah. an alarm system and home automation, and this was back in uh, you know, the 1860s. Incredible. And the the most amazing, well, the box is amazing in the prop. I mean, it's just, it really is historically significant. And when I was at your place, I was looking around for it, and you've got a lot of things in cases and, you know, different places. And I'm looking for this in a case, and, and you just have it sitting out there. And and you let me pick it up. And then you let me not pick it up because you did the trick to me. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a, it's yeah, amazing. Oh it still works. I mean, the thing is from, you know, the 1860s. 1850, it, it still yeah, works. 1856, and it still works. Unbelievable. Pretty neat. It's amazing. And then your collection has now overflowed into uh, two other buildings. You have a grist mill. Yes. And then, and then there's Whitehall. Talk a little bit about those two places. They're about, well, yeah, they're, they're about, what, 45 minutes away from your house. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> the grist mill was falling down, and uh, we rebuilt that. And then what do you do with a grist mill? I thought, well, make the flour, make it, and people can come in and give them a bag of flour. Uh, no, that's not so great. I thought making a distillery would have been better, but my son didn't think that was the best idea because of its location. So I thought, hey, I'm going to start collecting illusions. So now, so far, I don't have a lot, but about 65, 65 or 70 illusions. A, a big prop. I mean, these are props that are used with uh, people or animals and sawing in halves and different things like that. Floating women yeah. and whatever, big ones, because there's no one. Oh, there's another fellow that has wonderful illusions, but he takes pictures of them and shows them. And then if you want to see it, he has to take it out and he'll unpack it for you. Nice guy. And, but these are all ready. You just walk around them. Right. And uh, it's fun. And it's several floors there. And then in the Four in the house floors, next door yeah. in Whitehall. And White Whitehall has an amazing history to it as well. Wasn't, wasn't Grant one of the visitors there? Yeah, Grant would visit Whitehall. It was a fallen down building again that we restored. And we're and, talking about uh, General Grant. Not U.F. Grant, the magician. This is General Grant. No, General <laughs> yeah. Grant, yeah. And uh, he he owned three mills, and two of them were falling down, and one was still there. So uh, we rebuilt that. And 
it's I hate to see things go to waste or tear down wonderful buildings and there's something I don't get a lot out of because I'm not looking for a business outside the baking business. That's what I like and what my son likes. So uh, it's just a fun thing to do, create and keep things going for the next generation to see. That's what I'm doing right now. Uh, you mentioned his name before. He comes down in Glenna and uh, putting everything on a computer. So yeah, Richard. Great yeah. research. Be really great research for magicians in the future. Well, it's it's very nice of you to do that, and uh, you know you're just a kind person. But the historical impact of your collection and the fact that you're taking the time and spending the money to uh, digitize this and categorize it for people for future generations to use is just wonderful. Well, I thank you. You know, we got to do something as we pass through this life. And uh, I'm I'm going to be a John Calvert, though. I made up my mind. He gave me the recipe to live past 100. And what's that? I, I, I don't know if I want that much competition if I want to share <laughs> this. But, but I will. He said, don't smoke and take Metamucil every night. <laughs> Bad thing. I started smoking. But... Uh. Again. <laughs> I saw John on his 100th birthday, actually. John Calvert was a famous magician and movie star and uh, uh, yeah, odor and everything else. Just a daredevil. He was, he was like a real-life James Bond. And on his 100th birthday, he performed uh, in Colon, Michigan at Abbott's. And uh, we had a party at Jerry Costello's house, a good friend of ours. And uh, I said, what's the secret to being 100? And he said, when you get to 99, be really careful. <laughs> wise men there's a lot of wise magicians out there. a lot of wise magicians well you're you have a wonderful legacy many years ahead of you uh your collection is amazing the salon de magie you're a wonderful person and uh, your stories are just fascinating you've contributed so much to the world of magic and the world of baking and uh you're just a great person and I, i'm just it's an honor to call hey. you a friend thank you ken hey don't don't blow me up so big. I don't want that big head. Thank you so much. And well, come it's got to be huh? as big as your heart. How about that? Come, come, come on down again. Bring a couple guys with you, okay? I'll do that. I Thank love you very much. Well, I, I love you, Ken. Thanks a lot for talking with us Not, today. Nice, nice speaking to you again. Bye All bye. Right. Take, Take care. care. And that was another episode of Innovates. I'm your host, Michael Mode. Until next time, stay curious. This is a previously recorded episode. Thanks for listening to the Innovates podcast featuring speaker and innovation expert Michael Mode. Make sure to check back on the 8th. We will post new episodes of Innovates on the 8th, 18th, and 28th of the month. The Innovates podcast is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. For more information about Michael Mode and his corporate speaking and consulting services, please visit Innovates.com. That's I-N-N-O-V-E-I-G-H-T-S.com or BigLightBulb.com.